0: How much of the pie does God get from you? That's a good illustration, isn't it? I I think it's thought-provoking. We spend so much time and energy and resources on the cares of this world, you know, keeping up with stuff, keeping up with material possessions, maybe, maybe keeping up with our friends. And at the end of all that, when we look at what's left over, if anything is left over, is that what we're giving to God? Is, uh, is that us giving him our best or are we giving him what's left over after the world gobbles up its chunk of our lives? So Today for this installment of our essential series, we're talking about essential giving. And i got to be honest with you, this is a sermon that a lot of preachers don't look forward to. Because part of it has to do with money, although that is just one part of it. There's a whole lot more to giving than just giving money actually. In fact, it can be a lot easier at times to just give money than to give our time and our energy to something. There are plenty of people who would rather write a check to help purchase items for a needy family, for instance, than to actually go to their house and talk to them and tell them about Jesus Christ and pray with them. I know there are people who would rather send a check to missions than actually go on a missions trip. The fact is, both are needed. Okay, we need both of those. But much more is often required of us when we fully engage in ministry beyond just writing a check, okay? So money is a part of giving and it's a part of keeping the ministry moving forward and so it does factor into this conversation. And although evangelical preachers have for the most part earned the the bad rap that we have about money and we've earned it, uh, I want you to know today that I... Listen, I do not love your money. I hope you know that. I love you. I don't love your money. This ministry needs money to do what God called us to do. But I'm far more interested in you than I am in your money. Okay? That's my heart. So know where I'm coming from today. We'll talk about money some, and we'll cover some other subjects as well. But the point of the message is to look at what God says about giving, which is a much bigger subject than any one form of giving. Okay? So we'll spend the next few minutes trying to answer two questions today. The first question is, what are we expected to give? Okay. Of course, I mean by that, what does God expect us to give? So what are we expected to give? If you, If you read the Old Covenant, the rules, the laws set forth by God for His people in the Old Testament, there was one set of answers to that question. And then if you look at the New Covenant, as it is... Described in the New Testament, there seems to be a very different set of answers. Of course, we know now that we're living under the new covenant, right? Let's establish that. Jesus introduced the coming of the new covenant at the Last Supper in Luke 22, 20, when he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And he's referring, obviously, to his coming sacrifice, the pouring out of his blood for all of us. The new covenant was sealed then by the blood of Christ. Similarly, the Old Covenant was sealed by blood, but it was blood from animal sacrifice. If we look in Exodus 24, after sacrificing a couple of oxen, uh, verses 6, 7, and 8 say, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, this is the Old Covenant, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. That sounds kind of gross. And he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. They were covered with the blood. So it wasn't enough for the people to just hear the words of the Lord. It wasn't enough even for them that they agreed or would heed the words of the Lord. The Old Covenant, to be effective, had to be sealed in blood. And in a similar way, the New Covenant had to be sealed in blood. Okay? The blood of animals could only go so far. It could only do so much. In the end, it was inadequate to cleanse us from sin. So Jesus offered the blood of perfection. Effectively sealing the New Covenant that the Father had made with His people forever. Alright? I just want to stop here and say, thank you, Jesus. Amen for the ultimate example of giving he gave everything for us okay and now we live under that new covenant in second corinthians 3 3 through 6 paul says and you show that you are a letter from christ delivered by us written not with ink but with the spirit of the living god not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts such is the confidence that we have through christ toward god not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then in Hebrews 8, 6-13, through 13, it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Okay, so that sounds like Something different than what was before. For, it, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's referring to the old covenant. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He's now referring to the new covenant here. I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Okay, We read this last week. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's verse 13. I'm so incredibly grateful that we live under the New covenant today, sealed by the blood of Jesus. But this sentiment has grown in the eyes of minds and in the eyes and hearts and minds of people in the church to mean there are no more rules for living because the law is gone. Life is all just a big happy cloud of grace, and as long as we mean well and love everybody, we can sort of do whatever we want. This is creeping into the church. I've seen it over my lifetime. In his book, *The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God*, D. A. Carson, one of my favorite authors, I think every Christian should read the book. Uh, He's—he is. Uh, I don't exactly agree with all of his doctrine, but he's a wonderful Christian, uh, incredible author. Uh, the Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, it's about that thick. You can read it in one sitting. D.A. Carson, he, he writes, I'm quoting, The only aspect of God's character the world still believes in is his love. His holiness, his sovereignty, his wrath are often rejected as being incompatible with a loving God. Because pop culture has so distorted and secularized God's love, even many Christians have lost a biblical understanding of it. He goes on to say that the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. Our culture doesn't want a God that comes with rules and requirements and expectations. We want a God that's easy. We want Burger King God, you know, quick and easy, have it my way. And so we've relegated him to this kind of Santa Claus status, this big happy guy that hands out presents when we act nice. We talked about this some a couple weeks ago, and I'm not going to hash over the same ground again, but when answering the question, what are we expected to give, it's important to recognize the new covenant requirements of God's people, that's us, in relationship to the old covenant requirements, okay? Because there are requirements for us under the new covenant. So let's take a minute and compare some of those requirements between these two covenants, right, In Exodus, chapters 20 and 21 and 22 and 23 and the whole book of Leviticus, much of the Old Testament, we see the Old Covenant, including the Ten Commandments, spelled out. These were rules for God's people to live by and they touched every single area of their lives. Rules about what to eat and what not to eat, what to wear and what they shouldn't wear, where to worship, when to worship, how to worship, rules about how to treat each other, how much to give to God, where to give it, when to give it. It was everything. They they governed everything that God's people did on, on a daily basis. The Lord set forth before his people this set of expectations for giving. Expectations for giving their time and their energy and their abilities and their money and their goods and their devotion. It was all intended to be a form of worship from his people given back to him. Okay, and it was all based on percentages of their lives and possessions. You gave a percentage of your time, a percentage of your money, a percentage of your life. Everything was regulated under the old covenant to offer God worship in an ordered way. Leviticus chapter 16 says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died, because they they didn't do it right. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. In other words, you can't just waltz in here anytime you feel like it and make offerings to me or you're going to die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen garment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are holy garments. You can keep reading the whole chapter and really the entire book of Leviticus it goes on and on and on about when and how and how much to give to God. These were these were very specific rules uh, about exactly how to worship him. Okay, and then Leviticus 27, 30 through 34 introduces the tithe into the Mosaic law, the Old Covenant. This is not a favorite subject of a lot of people. <laughs> Verse 30 says, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Okay, the word tithe in the Hebrew language means tenth. Literally, a payment of a tenth. So 10% of everything that was owned, everything that was gained, was to be given the work of God. Most of you probably know this. But equally important to note here is the fact that God points out that the tithe already belongs to Him. Okay, So He already owns it. It's all His. And He's saying, as a part of your worship, I'm asking you to offer back to me that 10% so that it can be used to carry on and support the work of the ministry. Verse 31, if a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Okay? So, under the old covenant, all giving, whether it be in worship or sacrifice or devotion, was regulated, and what portion of each aspect of your life was to be given to God was spelled out by these rules and regulations, and that's what they lived by. It was a code. It was a covenant. And then along comes Jesus, and everything changes. All right? We established that we're living under the new covenant. And again, there's a lot of talk today, even in the church, about grace. And without grace, we'd all be in big trouble. That's true. We're saved by grace through faith. I wouldn't want to live this life without grace. (laughs) So without a doubt, grace is something worth talking about. But when the conversation about God becomes exclusively about grace at the expense of all of the other aspects and requirements of God, including other aspects of His love... We're no longer seeing the whole picture, which is what the quote from D.A. Carson was about, and in addition to potentially missing out on what he has for us, we may also be misrepresenting him and his word to those, particularly unbelievers, around us. Okay, so we need to get this right. We need to understand with a holy, uh, we need to understand grace the overwhelming offer of grace in the context of a covenantal relationship with a God who's holy and righteous and sovereign and loving and full of grace. You see, it all goes together. So how does this covenantal relationship with God change under the new covenant? Does it change? It wasn't that Jesus did away with the law. He actually... Simply is revealing the deeper interpretation of the law that he came to fulfill. You understand? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious people of the day, completely misinterpreted and perverted the law, and Jesus came to fulfill it, to explain it, to show the deeper revelation of the law. Okay? It's part of a progressive revelation of Christ and God's plan for the world that we see throughout the Bible. So, how does this blood-sealed relationship change under the New Covenant? Let's look at what Jesus says about that, okay? Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn there. And we'll start in verse 17. Matthew five seventeen. Okay, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Do you know the word iota? In this verse is the Greek word for yod, which is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's the most insignificant letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the word dot was the part of the letter... It's a little stroke that comes out from the letter and it's used to differentiate the space between the Hebrew letters. So he's literally saying the tiniest, most insignificant part of every single letter of the law will be fulfilled by me, Christ. Okay, now listen to this part, 19. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say whoever omits or deletes one of these commandments. He says, whoever even relaxes one of them, one of the least of them, including the iota and the dot, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. These are very strong words. This is very clear. Now, people say, well, what are you saying we're supposed to sacrifice animals and, and hold the feasts and do all of it? No. Because Christ fulfilled, Christ has fulfilled the law. His blood was shed Taking away the need for us to sacrifice animals and do some of these things, okay? So he fulfilled the law and is still fulfilling the law. It won't come until complete fulfillment until the end of the age, all right? As we read on, we see exactly what he means. He didn't come to take away all the requirements that God set before his people so so we could all just hold hands and sing love songs about each other because Jesus loves everybody. He does. (laughs) But we've created this mushy, soft, weak, watered-down gospel because it makes us feel good, and we're missing out on what he truly has for us. According to Jesus, the requirements for God's people under the new covenant actually just got kicked up a notch. Do you know that? It didn't get easier. Listen, verse 21, You have heard it said that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. We've known that's old covenant, got it. Verse 22, But I say to you, this is Jesus, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, that isn't exactly easier than the old rule. (laughs) It's a lot easier to say don't murder people than it is to say you're not even supposed to get angry with your brother unrighteously. There's righteous anger. We can talk about that another time, but... When you lose it and you go off on somebody, right? Skip down to verse 27. You have heard it, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Got it. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lord, that didn't get easier. The requirement for staying free from adultery just became a lot more strictly interpreted. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, in other words, those under the old covenant, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Now my wife would argue with that. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. What? What? If, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. you got to be kidding me. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Are you getting the idea here? The new covenant has, hasn't released us from the requirements of righteous living that he laid out in the old covenant. On the contrary, verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So in the old covenant, God's people were required to go so far for God. Or at least that's how they interpret it. Under the new covenant, we're required to go all the way. In other words, no more percentages. I want it all, is what God says. I want all of you. I want all of your heart. I want all of your worship. I want all of your energy. I want all of your devotion. I want all of your possessions. I want all of your passion. I want all of you. I want you to commit all that you are and all that you have and all that you care about to me. That sums up the new covenant. Under the old covenant, he required a portion of your day devoted to worship and prayer. Under the new covenant, what does he require? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you see the difference? This isn't a part-time deal. God wants full-time, full-on commitment and nothing else will do. And just a word about money. We compare the old and new covenants and we see that he requires so much more of us now than he did under the old covenant in every area of life. So why do we treat the money part any different? But we do. Most of you don't, actually. Most of you, I think, tithe. But because we don't want to give away all of our stuff. We like our stuff. I like my stuff. We work hard for our money. And I'm not telling you that we have to go out and empty out our checking accounts tomorrow and put it all in the offering bag or send it to a missionary. What I'm saying is that the same principles that apply To every other part of our lives in this context of the old and new covenants also apply to our money. Under the old covenant, he required 10% of our income to be given back to him. Under the new covenant, you guessed it, he wants all of it. What does that mean? Well, we're taught in scripture to take care of our families, to pay our bills, to store up for lean times so we can minister to other people, including our own families. So... He's not suggesting we go sell everything, give all our money to the poor, and live under a bridge. That's That's not what God is calling us to unless He's calling you to that. He's not called me to that. In Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus is chastising the Pharisees for their lack of understanding and commitment to God. And He says, "...but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others." He's saying to them, you pay your 10%, that's great, you should. But can't you see there's so much more that the Father wants from you? So much more, so many more important things than your 10% of your check. You're focused on percentages, he's saying. God wants all of you, 100%. So we get so hung up in the church today about whether or not we're supposed to give 10% of our income. I can't remember, in fact... I can honestly say I don't think my wife and I have ever only given 10% to the church annually. We start out every paycheck, we give 10% of our gross income to the church, just as a place to start. And then every gift to missions or special events or special needs that the church has or somebody has, it's all over and above that 10%. And when we look at our overall giving to the church at the end of each year, we've been married 20 years, coming up on 20 years, it's far more than 10%. Why? Because first of all, it all belongs to him anyway. Secondly, he wants us to devote all of our resources to him. And as a wonderful benefit, he says that when we give joyfully, we're immeasurably blessed. Okay, so what are you supposed to give? I don't know. I don't know. God has to answer that. We'll read that here. God has to tell you that. I think the answer is everything. What does that mean? Well, I can tell you what it meant for us. It means different things for different people. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-12 through 12 says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's a, an easy... Uh, context to understand. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. It's wrong if I stand up here and twist your arm to give some amount of money. That would be wrong. You don't give under compulsion. We give cheerfully. Okay? It's not my job to twist your arm and tell you you're not giving enough. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. Why? 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 He says, To be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. I can tell you that this firsthand, these verses have proven true time and time again in my own family. The more we've committed to God... The more we have given to Him faithfully and joyfully through the years, He has faithfully and consistently blessed us for our every need. And why? Not so we can build a bigger house. So that we can turn around and bless others. That's what this, this verse says. So what, what about 10%? You know what? We, I can't imagine many Americans not giving at least 10%. I'm not going to tell you, you have to give 10%. I can't imagine that we wouldn't give more than that. Because most of our lifestyles, hey, I'm talking to me. I was right there. Two homes, three at one point. Boats, cars, motorcycles, campers, big vacations, everything I ever wanted. Still gave more than 10%, could have given much more. What did it mean for me to get rid of everything and follow God? I'm not living under a bridge. I live in a beautiful home. It's 768 square feet with my family of five. One bedroom, one bathroom. We're crammed in there. It's a beautiful home. We're doing just fine. We have older cars. We used to drive brand new cars. Every couple of years, get a couple new cars. (laughs) Why all that? Well, you know what? I'm here. Gave away a lot so that I could be here to do this with you all the time. He blesses us. He meets our needs so that we can bless others. God loves a cheerful giver, and he blesses those who give. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16 to set aside what they're going to give on the first day of every week. Why the first day? Because it follows the old covenant command to give to God first, before you take for yourself. Proverbs 3.9 Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Okay, So the first check that we write on payday, my wife and I, is our tithe check to the church. That's the first check that we write. We just start off, it's a baseline. Here's 10%. We're going to do that because that was God's rule in the Old Testament. That's a good standard. We start there and we go from there. There's a great little book back in our cafe back here written by one of my professors at seminary. It's real short. It's entitled How to Live for Jesus. And they're free, by the way, if you'd like one. We bought them from him in bulk so we could give them to folks who may have been making a new commitment to Christ. There's a lot of basic first steps for living for God. And there may only be a handful back there, but if you want one and they're not there, ask me. We have lots of them in the office here. In that, uh, next to the last chapter, he talks about giving and... and In the context of money. And it's a great overview of how and why we should give money to the ministry today. And he talks about the 10%. So if you're interested, you can pick one of those up. I don't want to spend all day on that, okay? God wants it all, is the point. And not just our money. He wants every part of us. Every aspect of our lives. And of course, what is our ultimate example to follow in giving? The answer is always Jesus Christ. What did he give as our example? 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the whole sermon right there. In one verse, Jesus is our ultimate example. He gave it all, and so should we. So, question number one, what are we expected to give? Well, just everything. Just all of it. That's it. All that we are, all that we have, all that we hope for, all of our dreams, passions, all that, we just give it all to Him. That's what He wants. And we'll close today by looking at a second question, briefly. We can't answer this question with Scripture because only each one of us can answer it, okay? By examining our own hearts. The question is, what are we willing to give? What are we willing to give? Jesus gave everything. Are you willing to give everything? Some give more than others. Some sell out for God completely and give everything. We see that in Scripture. The Apostle Paul, lots of others. And yet some believers seemingly give very little of themselves to the work of the Lord. Why, Why is that? Why do we hold back? Why do we not give everything? Well, there are probably a lot of reasons. But to name just a few... First, because of fear. Sometimes we fear what might happen to us if we, if we actively serve God. Sometimes we fear what other people might think of us if we take a public stand for Christ. But the Word says there is no fear in Him. Back to 1 John in chapter 4. starting in verse 15. We read, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in his love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I get afraid. That's probably my biggest hang up. For me personally. My biggest sin is fear. I constantly think about what might happen. That's my struggle. I'm afraid all the time of what could happen. What they might think. What they might say. I can tell myself stories. I run these scenarios in my head. It's tiring sometimes. Being afraid gets old. There's no fear in Him. When we're truly in Jesus Christ, there's no fear. Fear comes in when we get outside of Him. See, when we stop trusting in Him, we become afraid. There's a great example of living in Christ, listen to this, without fear, Ignatius of Antioch, who was one of our early church fathers. He's being transported, this is true, from Syria to Rome, to be executed in the first century for his faith. And he wrote these words in a letter called to the Romans. He addressed the Christians in Rome as he was being taken to the Colosseum in Rome to be devoured by lions. And he knew that's what was getting ready to happen. This is what he wrote. May I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me. And I pray they may be found eager to rush upon me, which also I will entice to devour me speedily and not deal with me as with some whom out of fear they have not touched. But if they be unwilling to assail me, I will compel them to do so. (laughs) Pardon me in this. I know what is for my benefit. Now I begin to be a disciple. And let no one of things visible or invisible envy me that I should attain to Jesus Christ. Let fire and the cross Let the crowds of wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocations of bones, let cutting off of members, let shatterings of the whole body, and let all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. Man, are you kidding me? This was a man who had no fear. Because of his great love for Christ and the love of Christ in him. What an amazing example of someone clinging to Christ and forsaking all fear. We should all be so bold. What's another reason we don't give him everything? Well, I think because sometimes we just don't feel like it. Life is busy. We get tired. We get weary. We get worn out, don't we? I mean, half the time we're all walking around with our eyes half closed. Because we're tired. We have so much on our plate. And the last thing I have time for is one more Bible study. or, Or another church service. Or stopping my routine to tell someone about Jesus in the middle of my day. In Galatians 6, 9 and 10, Paul says, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's all of us. You know, we have to be willing to give to God even when we don't feel like it, even when we're tired, even when we're worn out, even when we're weary. We have to be willing to give. And finally, I think that sometimes we don't give Him everything because we don't believe we have anything to offer. Romans 12, starting on verse 4, and I'm closing. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Every single believer has gifts given to us from God. That's a fact. They're not all the same, but we all have gifts to share. Don't think that you have nothing to offer. We all have very much to offer. And I'll tell you in the future, we're going to talk about discovering those gifts in us. But it's important to realize that each one of you has gifts inside of you that you're required to share in service to God. We're all called to the ministry, every one of us. It's the truth. Okay, so what are we willing to give? It's one thing to come to church, that's good, we need to do that. It's another thing to be involved or engaged in the ministry. What we do here in this church is supposed to edify the whole body. We, we build one another up in the faith, in the church, that's very scriptural. Through church and the ministry, we're equipped to do the work of the Lord. That's what the Bible says. So showing up and participating is very important. Giving to this work with your time and your energy and your money and your passion. It's important, not only to our own spiritual development, but it's also critical to reaching the lost, which is what we're all called to do. Okay, We've all been commissioned to be a part of this and reach the lost. Which, by the way, also means giving outside of these walls. It isn't all about what happens in here. It's about what happens outside of here as well, outside of these services. What are we willing to give when we're not here, when we're out in the community or in our neighborhood or at work? What are we willing to give then? God is requiring us to give it all, all the time, not just when we're in church, okay? And if... If all this is starting to sound like something that could take up a significant part of your life, well, I have news for you. (laughs) Serving God should take up all of your life. It should permeate everything that you do. That's what it means to truly give, and it's essential to our growth in Him. At the end of His life, at the end of this life, I don't want to look back and realize I could have done so much more for God. You know what I mean? I don't want to leave anything on the table. I don't want to waste one moment. A.W. Tozer, another one of my favorite authors, I have many, he wrote this, Life is a short and fevered rehearsal for a concert we cannot stay to give. Just when we appear to have attained some proficiency, we're forced to lay our instruments down. They're simply... There is simply not time enough to think, to become, to perform what the constitution of our nature indicates we're capable of. What a powerful reflection from a man who devoted his life to Christ and has had incredible impact on untold masses of people for the sake of the kingdom of God. What a perspective. Listen, you're my friends. This is my family. God gave me this message to share with you today, okay? Time is short. None of us knows how long we have in this life. Why waste a moment of it? Compared to eternity and all the reward that we stand to gain in infinitude, what is the value of the fleeting pleasures of this mortal life? I mean, really. What gain could we possibly hope to achieve when held up in measure against the riches and glory of eternal communion with our Creator? Any pleasure that we could possibly conjure in our wildest dreams pales in comparison to what is in store for those who choose to follow Him. So I'm going to ask you one more time What are you willing to give? What are you willing to give? Jonathan, Sammy, would you guys come? Jesus gave everything. Are you willing to give everything? And and here's the thing. If you say that you are, if you make that commitment, are you prepared for what he might require of you? In desperation four years ago, I made that commitment. I'll never forget it. I said, Lord, I'm done trying to do this on my own. I was a Christian, but I hadn't given him everything. I hadn't sold out to him in a very very short a few weeks after i prayed that prayer he called me and my family to alaska we had to sell most of our belongings give up our income completely give up our standard of living and move 4500 miles away from home away from family away from friends to answer that call was there uncertainty was there fear were we a nervous wreck honestly not at all no we actually had perfect peace because we knew we were selling out and giving everything to him and we knew that's where he wanted us to be. So don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. <laughs> there were and still are aspects of this journey we're on, which have obviously led us back here, but that have been very difficult. There are still times when it's difficult, but every single need, every iota, every dot, has been taken care of even down to the smallest most seemingly insignificant detail because God is so faithful to his word when we do our part he always does his part so what is giving everything mean for you I don't know I don't know only God can show you that but I know how it starts It starts with each one of us making a commitment. A commitment to follow him wherever he leads. A commitment to give him every part of your life, no matter what. And so this is it. If you're willing to make that commitment today, this is it. We're closing. If you would say, you know what, I'm willing to take that step. Whatever he's going to say, whatever you're going to lead me to, I want to completely commit my life to you. Let me just tell you, there's no other life worth living. If that's you, if you would say that today, I want to ask you to stand with me this morning as we close in prayer. Go ahead. We're going to take just a moment or two. I'll i I'll close us in a general prayer, but I just want to take it, not long, it's late, a minute or two, and ask you, in your own way, if you want to raise your hands, you can. If you want to come down here, you can. You sit right where you are. It doesn't matter. This is between you and God, okay? But I want to ask you, allow your heart and your mind to ascend, transcend this room for a moment into the heavenlies and say, Lord, I must have you and I'm willing to make that commitment but I need to hear your voice. I need to see the path. I need to know where you want me to go. So let's take a moment or two as these guys play some music and let's search for God. Let's seek his will this morning and then I'll close this in prayer, okay?